following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. Well, I invite you to open up God's Word with me to the fifth chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 5 this morning. We come in our gathering to our Savior's opening introduction to what has become known as the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount. This morning, I want to unpack the first 16 verses of this famous sermon that extends from the beginning of chapter 5 through the end of Matthew chapter 7. And so I want to begin by reading in your hearing again the holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative, and sufficient word of the true and living God, Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Grace community, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What is true blessedness? What does it mean to be blessed? In recent years, it's become a trend on social media to place a banner with the word blessed over one's profile picture. Of course, the irony of it all 
is that so many people who utilize this feature and place the banner or the frame with the word blessed on it over their selfies and over all their pictures have countless amount of selfies and pictures of themselves with the word blessed attached to them. And while some may truly utilize this feature over a picture of them or their family or their grandchildren because they truly do acknowledge how fortunate they are, it seems like for the majority, this trend has become a way of flaunting one's body or beauty or riches or possessions in a way that, well, doesn't seem to make them appear too vain because, after all, their body looks the way it does and they have the riches and possessions that they do because they've been blessed by the universe or by good karma or by some higher power or by God, some will say. Even the non-religious are throwing out language about being blessed all over the place. Much of this, unfortunately, comes from famous television preachers whose message centers around health and wealth and prosperity. They use this language on a regular basis. Joel Osteen, for example, states, and I quote, The way you bless yourself is to say what God says about you. I am strong. I am talented. I am forgiven. I am healthy. I am valuable. I am a masterpiece. He continues, those are not just positive affirmations. You just invoked a blessing on yourself. When you speak it out, you give life to what you're saying. When you say, I am blessed, blessings come looking for you. When you say, I am prosperous, good breaks start tracking you down. Close quote. And what's concerning about all of this, whether it's the latest trend on social media or the mainstream message of television preachers, is that people are deceived about what it means to be truly blessed. It's become just a passing word, a byword, a word that we say all the time, but we really don't consider the meaning of it. Well, when we turn our attention to the opening words of our Savior's Sermon on the Mount, the sermon begins on the note of blessedness. And this is fascinating in light of the note on which the ministry of Moses ended in Deuteronomy chapter 33. Remember what we are seeing again and again and again in Matthew's gospel. Jesus is the long-awaited, highly anticipated fulfillment of God's promise to raise up from Israel, another prophet like Moses. He is the new Moses. He is the new deliverer. He is the new covenant lawgiver who, like Moses, ascends the mount, takes his seat, but who, unlike Moses, doesn't receive the law from God, but as God in the flesh, delivers his authoritative manifesto for what life in his kingdom and under the new covenant will and must look like. But as the new Moses, the ministry of Jesus picks up exactly where the ministry of Moses ended. 
the very last recorded words of Moses were these. Deuteronomy 33, 29. Blessed are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by Yahweh, the shield of your help and the sword of your triumph. Your enemies shall come fawning to you and you shall tread upon their backs. You see the connection. The ministry of Moses ends with a proclamation of the blessedness of God's old covenant people, Israel, as those who have been saved and helped mightily by God. And it's no coincidence that the ministry of Jesus, the new Moses, begins with a proclamation of the blessedness of the new Israel with whom the new and everlasting covenant will be established. Thus, the Beatitudes, as delivered by Jesus, the new Moses, describe the blessings of the spiritual exodus and the spiritual conquest that he came to accomplish for his people. They describe the blessedness of the new Israel as a people liberated from the bondage of sin and who, through Christ, are more than conquerors over their spiritual enemies. The the connections just keep popping up again and again. And as we stressed in the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount last Sunday, the commandments and the ethical standards laid down in the Sermon on the Mount are not laws that must be kept in order to attain salvation or to become God's people. On the contrary, the standards laid down in the Sermon on the Mount describe the conduct and character of a people saved by God and adopted as his children. A couple commentators point out, and I quote, the Beatitudes are first of all blessings, not requirements. So by opening the Sermon on the Mount, they place it within the context of grace. And their function is very similar to the function of chapter 4, verse 23, through chapter 5, verse 2. Just as healing comes before imperative, so does blessing come before demand. And they conclude, the precedence of grace could not be plainer. The hard commands of Matthew 5, 6, and 7 presuppose God's mercy and prior saving activity. You see, even as God, through Moses, delivered the old covenant law to Israel after he had already saved them out of Egypt, so Jesus, as the new Moses, lays down his law, as it were, lays down his demands, his Manifesto for his kingdom consisting of people who have already been saved and adopted into the family of God. Just like the old covenant people. They were saved before they were given a law. That's why in chapter 6, Jesus instructs his disciples to pray to God as their father. That wouldn't be possible apart from the blessings of regeneration and adoption. He's not talking to the crowds as though they have access to God apart from him. He's talking to people, addressing people who will be saved and who will address God as their father. And now scholars disagree on the exact number of Beatitudes. Some say that there are eight. Some say that there are nine. 
And I believe that there are eight, and that what many consider to be the ninth beatitude in verse 11 is actually a further commentary and explanation of the eighth beatitude in verse 10. So there really are eight. Well, this morning, I am not ashamed to say that I have no fancy preaching outline other than what's already laid out for us in our Savior's words. And so I want to walk you through the Beatitudes this morning and the verses that follow them. I want to begin by reading in verse 1 and then consider the very first Beatitude with you in verse 3. Notice again, Matthew tells us, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You might be wondering where the word beatitude comes from. We don't use that often today. It comes from the Latin word beatus, which means happy or blessed, which is why I think that referring to these eight pronouncements of divine blessing as the Beatitudes is fitting. The teaching ministry, at least as it's laid out for us by Matthew, begins where the ministry of Moses ended, on the note of blessedness. Each Beatitude begins with the word blessed, blessed. The word in the Greek is makarios, and when referring to people, it describes a person who is a privileged recipient of God's grace and favor. Whenever blessed is used regarding people, it's referring to a person who is a privileged recipient of God's grace and favor. Some translators recently have rendered the word blessed as happy. Happy are the poor in spirit. Happy are the meek. And while there's some truth to that, the word is actually much deeper than mere happiness. To be blessed by God produces and certainly results in happiness, but this happiness is not a surface-level, ever-changing happiness that is dependent on outward circumstances. It's a deep-rooted happiness or joy or contentment that goes down deep into the heart and into the soul of a person and makes it so that whatever the situation or whatever the circumstance, there is joy and contentment in God as their greatest treasure and their highest hope. One commentator described the word blessed like this, rather than happiness in its mundane sense, it refers to the deep inner joy of those who have long awaited the salvation promised by God and who now begin to experience its fulfillment. I want to point out two things before we make our way through these Beatitudes. Number one, I want to point out, and you need to understand, that the source and fount of all true blessing and blessedness is God. The source and fount of all true blessing and blessedness is God. It is God 
who blesses. It is God who bestows this blessedness upon sinners. He graciously chooses to extend his loving, undeserved favor upon sinners, and the result is that they are blessed. They are looked upon with divine favor and grace when they should be looked upon with divine wrath and fury. He brings them into the sphere of his favor and grace. To be blessed by God, according to Numbers chapter 6, verse 24 and following, is to be held and kept by God. To be blessed is to have the very face of God, not against you, but graciously shining upon you. That's what it means to be blessed. To be blessed by God is for God to lift up his countenance upon you and to grant you the greatest possible inner peace. That's what it means to be blessed. The Lord bless you, keep you, make his face to shine upon you, lift up his countenance upon you and leave you with peace. That's what it means. It is God who blesses. It is God who bestows blessedness upon sinners. Later on in Matthew's gospel, we find passages like this. And I want you to listen very carefully because these passages help us to understand and define the meaning of being blessed. Note this down, Matthew 13, verse 16 and following. Jesus looks at his disciples and he says to them, But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Your eyes are blessed because they see, and your ears are blessed because they actually hear what I'm saying. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear but did not hear it. Well, of course, this comes after his disciples came to him and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? Why do you speak to the people in parables? And he answered, Listen, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom, but to them it has not been given. So to be blessed, according to Jesus, is to have it so that you are given to know the secrets of the kingdom, to truly understand the depths of the kingdom. Jesus goes on and says, for to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. And it's in that context that Jesus says, but blessed are your eyes, for they see, and blessed are your ears, for they hear. What's the source of this blessing? It's God who has opened their eyes and who has opened their ears to hear and understand. The next example just comes three chapters later in Matthew chapter 16. They're in Caesarea Philippi. 
Jesus is there with his disciples, and he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said to him, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And listen to Jesus' reply to Peter. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So according to Jesus, to be blessed by the Father is to come to the understanding and realization that Jesus is who he says he is. This blessedness doesn't arise out of the wisdom of the flesh but of the revelation, from the revelation that comes from the Father. To be blessed by God is for God to grant you the privilege of receiving his favor and grace. That's the first thing I want you to note. The source and fount of all true blessing and blessedness is God. Secondly, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins with these pronouncements of blessing before he places any demands on his disciples. He begins on the note of blessedness before he drives home the importance of obedience. And this is important because it shows that the imperatives of the kingdom are rooted in the indicatives of the kingdom. In other words, God always begins by saving a people and blessing a people before he charges those people to live in a way that pleases him. Religion gets that backwards. Man-made religion, I should say, gets that backwards. You obey God, and then you receive God's blessing. Biblical Christianity, authentic religion, as portrayed in the scriptures, begins with God saving and blessing a people, and then calling them to live how they are called to live. He makes us who we are in Christ before calling us to do what we're called to do for Christ. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins by describing a privileged people who've been granted God's favor and granted God's grace, though they did nothing to deserve it. And he does this before laying upon them the demands of the kingdom. That's critical to understand. Jesus begins with these pronouncements of blessing before he places any demands on his disciples. That's because... What you're called to do for Christ must always flow from who you now are in Christ. I say that again. What you're called to do for Christ must always flow from who you now are in Christ. The righteousness that Jesus describes in the Sermon on the Mount is a result of God's blessing and favor upon our lives rather than a requirement for receiving God's blessing and favor upon our lives. So never, ever mix those up. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. This is the first of the Beatitudes. And this is interesting because in the Greek, the word means to cower, to be hunched over, to bow down, in to be timid, to, 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 to bow down timidly. It, it really describes the posture and the position 
of the common beggar in that day. It means to be destitute, to be beggarly. Beggars were known to be usually, typically, crippled. They had no way to work, no way to earn an income. They were hunched over, crippled, usually at the gates of the city where there was much traffic and much attention to be given to them in hopes that they would receive either food or some kind of financial help. They were incapacitated, completely unable to provide for themselves. And so what Jesus is saying here is blessed are those who were spiritually beggars, who have nothing to offer, who have been incapacitated by the fall and by sin, and who really have nothing of worth, nothing of value to offer to God. That's how he finds us. Though we think when he finds us, we're much more than that. But when he saves us, we come to the realization that that's all we are and nothing more. And so we identify with the old hymn, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress, helpless I look to thee for grace, foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That's the language of a spiritual beggar. And Jesus says, blessed are such people. You see, what we're going to learn in the Beatitudes and throughout the Sermon on the Mount and really the entire Gospel of Matthew is that Jesus is describing what some call the upside-down kingdom. It's countercultural. Where the kingdom is built not by power, and might and exertion, but by sacrifice and self-denial and even the blood of martyrs. It's countercultural. It's upside down to the way we think. The world says, you want to be blessed? You must have power. You must lay your hands on what you want and then you must follow that. Jesus says, blessed are those who are destitute in spirit, beggarly in spirit, like spiritual cripples who have nothing to offer No worth, no value, but to simply open up a hand and say, God, have mercy upon me, the sinner. This is really beautifully illustrated in Psalm 86. In Psalm 86, it's David who writes this. King David, wealthy David. In verse 1 of Psalm 86, This is how David begins the psalm. He says, Listen, Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. This was not referring to David's financial status, his social status. He was the king in Israel. If there was one wealthy man, it was him. And yet he acknowledges that before God, he is poor and needy. Notice what spiritual poverty looks like. Protect my life, for I am faithful. You are my God. Save your servant who trusts in you. Be gracious to me, Lord, for I call to you all day long. That's what it means to be spiritually destitute calling upon God all the day long. 
We're the needy one. He's the all-sufficient one. He says, bring joy to your servant's life because I turn to you, Lord. For you, Lord, are kind and ready to forgive, rich in faithful love to all who call on you. Jesus is saying, that's the kind of person that has the blessing of God upon their lives, is those who realize that they are bankrupt and spiritually destitute without anything to offer God or offer his son. That's what the gospel makes us, and that's what the gospel sustains in us. When we look to what we really are apart from grace and look to who he really is in Christ, look to who God really is in Christ for us, it produces a spiritual bankruptcy where we realize I'm the needy one, you're the all-sufficient giver. I have nothing to offer. Even the faith I have is something that's given to me. Any good that can come from me is just an emanation from your goodness coming to me and then through me back to you. Jesus pronounces the blessing, blessedness upon those who are poor in spirit. He is describing people who are who trusting God for their salvation and who cry out to him for grace and recognize his willingness and readiness to forgive. And why are they blessed? Well, notice the end of the verse. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What I want you to notice about these eight beatitudes is that the first beatitude and the eighth beatitude serve as the brackets or the bookends to all the other beatitudes. Look at verse three again. The end of the verse says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And now skip down to verse 10, where you see the eighth beatitude and look at how it ends. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the first and last beatitude end on the note with the promise of the kingdom. The promise that the kingdom is yours right now. It's in the present tense. These are the only two beatitudes in the Greek that signifies some present reality. In other words, theirs currently is the kingdom. They currently possess the kingdom. They are current citizens of the kingdom. All the other beatitudes in between have an eschatological fulfillment at the end of the road. They shall be comforted. They shall receive mercy. They shall be satisfied. They shall see God. These beatitudes, the book ends, describe the present possession of the kingdom of heaven by those who are Christ's people. The beatitudes are set by Jesus within the framework of the promise of the kingdom. And he's not talking about a future possession or inheritance of the kingdom. He uses, here in verse 3, the present tense to convey to his disciples that right now, They are blessed because right now the kingdom is theirs. The kingdom is theirs. To borrow the words of the Apostle Paul to the Colossians, God the Father has already delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. So again, Matthew's gospel presents us with an inaugurated eschatology. An inaugurated eschatology. The kingdom of Christ has, has an already but not yet dimension to it. Let me explain that. 
The kingdom has an already but not yet dimension to it. Although we are already citizens in this kingdom, we await the full expression and glorious consummation of this kingdom at the very end of the age when our Savior returns. The kingdom is here right now, and we are citizens of it right here and right now. And yet, at the same time, we await that future day described by Jesus in Matthew 25, 34, when he, the king, will say to his people, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Come. Enter in. Come, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. It's interesting. If you would turn with me quickly to Daniel chapter 7, this is something that was prophesied and seen long before the Sermon on the Mount. That the kingdom would be given to God's holy people. Look at verse 13 with me. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. So we know this is Jesus being presented to his father. And notice verse 14. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall rise out of the earth, But notice verse 18, church. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. So long before the Sermon on the Mount, it was seen by Daniel that the saints, the people of Yahweh, would receive the kingdom. And here we have, hundreds of years later, Jesus saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. God obviously is the one who rules over the kingdom, but he's granted the kingdom to his people. That's grace. That's a magnanimous heart. That's generosity in the infinite degree. This shows that God has... There's no threat in him to potentially lose the kingdom. He's not threatened by his subjects that maybe they'll usurp his authority or pick it at his gates and say, we, we want to take this over. No, his transforming grace is such that they will forever submit to him as Lord and submit to him as king and rightfully take their position as beggars in the first century on the ground before him where he pronounces them blessed. Beatitude number two. Look next at verse four. 
He says, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, if we're not careful, we can take these and twist them in directions that they are not meant to go. A lot of people have taken the Sermon on the Mount and have tried to implement it to enforce social justice. And if we really want to see a utopia uh, uh, in this world, we should implement these things. And so who are those who are going to be comforted by God? They are those who mourn. They are those who weep. They are those who feel deep, deep sorrow. These are the poor of the earth. They are the ones to inherit salvation. That's not what Scripture teaches. All of these Beatitudes have a spiritual dimension to them. And they're not just describing the poor, as Luke's gospel uh, teaches us. Luke's gospel says, blessed are the poor. Matthew is the one who adds poor in spirit. But we know, comparing the two, that Luke really does mean those who are poor in spirit. Because poverty in this life does not guarantee glory in the next life. You could be a, a, a beggar all your life and still go to hell because you've loved your sin and you've loved yourself. It has nothing to do with your social status. And now, blessed are those, divinely favored are those who mourn. And what's interesting about these first Beatitudes and really all the Beatitudes is many believe that Jesus is drawing from Isaiah chapter 61. Turn there quickly. Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 3, where we find the theme of blessedness and brokenness and poverty and mourning and comfort for those who mourn and righteousness and the Father being glorified. Listen to these words from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Remember, Jesus stands in the synagogue, and he quotes this verse, and he says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus acknowledges that Isaiah 61 is all about him. So he says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, which we just saw him doing last week in Matthew chapter 4. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who were bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. So Jesus, very clearly, is drawing from this section of Isaiah as the spirit-filled, anointed Messiah who's come to preach good news, not just to poor people, but to people who have been blessed by God to understand their spiritual poverty for them to receive the kingdom. Those who mourn in the context of Isaiah 61 and throughout the rest of the Bible is a mourning over not just sin, but all the effects that flow from sin. Do you long to see a better world? Do you long to see things made right? 
Do you long to be delivered from this body of death as Paul describes it in Romans chapter 7? Do you long to throw off this tent and be clothed with immortality? Do you mourn over your sin? Do you, are you awakened to the reality of how offensive your sin truly is to God? Even that much more as a believer justified by his grace, do you see the offensiveness of your sin and do you mourn? Because if so, you were blessed because you will receive comfort. Not only now, by the Spirit who is the Comforter, who he assures you that you are justified, cleansed, and sanctified by the Gospel's power, but on that last and final day, there will be an eschatological comforting that we read about in the end of the book, where he wipes away every tear from your eyes, and he brings you in to his kingdom. Friends, do you take sin seriously enough to mourn over it? Do you mourn more over others, other people's sin than your sin? Do you mourn more at the nightly news than the nightly lusts and pride and anger that dwells within you? Blessed are those who mourn. They shall be comforted. Number three, look at the next verse. Blessed, verse five, are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This is a direct, almost a direct quotation from Psalm 37, verse 11, where the writer says, but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundance of peace. What's interesting is we have a major shift, minor in word, but major in reality, from the Old Testament promise of the land to what we see in the New Testament. You see, in the Old Testament, it started off with the promised land, right? As far as some of these patriarchs could see, that was going to be given to them as a promised land. But as we progress even Romans chapter 4 tells us that Abraham and his descendants and his offspring would inherit the world. Jesus takes this and says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Israel was just looking to inherit and maintain their foothold in that little piece of real estate in the Middle East. Jesus comes and says, No, 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 this is much bigger than that. It is much bigger than that. All this fighting going on over there is meaningless because what he has promised his people is an entirely new cosmos, an entirely new world. Well, the same word is used down at the end of this passage where it talks about the light of the world, salt of the earth. And we know that he's not just talking about this local land. He says, you will inherit a new creation. And it's the meek who inherit it. It's not the forceful, not the demanding, not those who are uh, setting themselves up and climbing that corporate ladder and throwing everyone down in their way. These are the meek. And what Jesus refers to here as meek, he's talking about people who, similar to those who are poor in spirit, they are those who, like the poor in spirit, live in complete and total dependence on God. Submission to God. 
A meek person, as one writer says, is one who feels that he is a servant in relationship to God and who subjects himself to him quietly and without resistance. Meek, humble, lowly, someone who truly understands their place. Some of us are driven by pride and selfish ambition, even in the church. Right? We want... We want to put ourselves out there. I have this great gift. I want to serve. I have the gift of hospitality. I want to show people my, my this. I have the gift of giving. I want to show people this. I want to, but, but friends, he's calling us to exercise all these gifts, yes, but in a meek manner. I heard nightmare. I heard stories of, uh, recently from a pastor I sat down with who church was ripped to shreds because of people who were not meek. They had wealth and possessions and property, and they felt that because they give so much to the church, they have a voice in the church, and therefore, because their money has brought them in and is causing this church to flourish in new buildings and new properties and things of such, they have the right to direct the church of Jesus Christ in a way that he's not directed his church. It's not the proud, it's not the assertive, it's not the arrogant, it's the meek that will inherit the earth. The meek they will inherit the earth. Moving on, he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The metaphor here is an intense longing, not just, yeah, I'll take a little bit of righteousness. Yeah, I'm thirsty for a little bit of righteousness. No, this is someone who truly understands the impact of the fall, not just only around the world, but the impact of the fall in their souls. I think this is the person who understands the tension between already being saved and justified and yet still dealing with the passions and desires of the flesh that are fallen and corrupt and distorted. Isn't it amazing how we can have a high note on the weekend and, 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 and leave this place excited and come to Wednesday night and leave on a high note and then as you're driving down the street, the flesh rears its ugly head again. It's there. And what Jesus is describing here is a, is a hunger, a thirst, an intense longing, intense craving for righteousness. Righteousness in their own life and righteousness around them. One writer says, the true disciple hungers and thirsts for righteousness. He longs to live a godly life as much as a starving man longs for his next piece of bread or a parched tongue yearns for a drop of water. Again, the gospel creates such people. In regeneration, God creates such people. He created you to hunger and truly thirst for righteousness. And the promise is that you will be satisfied you read in the Old Testament, specifically in the Psalms, David says, when I awake, I'll be satisfied in your likeness. You see, this is not just the satisfaction that comes in this life progressively, but again, this has a last day view. When you who have longed and hungered for righteousness, righteousness in you and righteousness in the world will be fully and finally and completely satisfied when all things are made new. As Second Peter chapter 3 tells us, when we live in a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells, that's where we're headed. You will be satisfied. That tells us also that you will not be fully satisfied in this world. There can be a contentment and a joy and a deep-seated happiness in God 
But as far as in this world, you will not find your home. You will not finally rest your, you know, stake your tent somewhere and be like, this is it. This is where my satisfaction is. No, you were created for a better world. Even the patriarchs, according to Hebrews chapter 11, longed for a city whose maker and founder was God. And that's where we're headed. Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? What are you hungry and thirsty for? Blessed are those, divinely privileged and divinely favored are those who are actually and truly hungry and thirsty for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Righteousness is one of the main themes of the Sermon on the Mount. He's going to go on and say that your righteousness as my disciples ought to transcend the righteousness manifested by the scribes and the Pharisees. It ought to be a greater quality of righteousness, and it's possible and attainable through his power and his power alone. He goes on and says in verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Again, the world, this is just so upside down in this world. This is so countercultural. The world says you're to be demanding. You're to demand justice. Have you noticed that everyone demands justice except when it comes to their own sin? Someone falls and fails and we are like, God, strike him dead. Discipline that brother, Lord. Discipline that sister. It's easy to go that way. Jesus says, blessed are those who are overflowing with mercy. Love covers a multitude of sins. That's the blessed man, the blessed woman who covers a multitude of sins. That doesn't make an excuse for sin, doesn't negate the, the, the necessity for church discipline that the Bible talks about. But for the most part, the person is just marked by mercy because they've been shown mercy. We're going to see later on in Matthew chapter 18, the parable of the unforgiving servant. Jesus describes a servant who owed this man hardly anything. The servant owed a debt, really, that was astronomical. Another servant owed that fellow servant nothing. But he was demanding that he go to jail and his whole family be taken to jail. Jesus, or the king, gets a hold of this guy and says, I forgave you all that debt. And you're holding this little, little debt over this guy's head? The outcome is not favorable. The outcome is hell. He's not saying we get to heaven by showing mercy. He's showing that we get to heaven by faith alone in Christ alone. And such a faith, such a conversion, such a life is produced in us where we, knowing how much mercy we have received, are quick to show mercy to others. Father, have mercy upon him. Father, have mercy upon her. Remind me how much you've forgiven me. Oftentimes we are so hurt. Oftentimes people offend us and hurt us. And what it reveals is not only a lack of mercy, but idolatry. That we would be so distraught and offended that someone hurt us. Could it be that it's because of an idolatry issue? You, you worship yourself. And someone insulted you. Someone overlooked you. Someone offended you. And it's like offending God to you because you have treated yourself as God. Blessed are the merciful, 
for they shall receive mercy. They will. What, what, what does Jude say? We are those who are building ourselves up in our most holy faith and looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, which leads to eternal life. Mercy is coming. Mercy has been bestowed now, but, oh, friends, this final day of mercy will come in and overtake us and over, uh, cause us to overflow with infinite gratitude. The merciful now will receive mercy on that last day. Verse 8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. They shall see God. Some people try to say that this purity means just that there's one substance in the heart. And I've kind of had that mistaken view for, for many years. But we're talking about here moral integrity. And I believe he's referring to Psalm 24. Psalm 24, which reads, Who shall ascend the hill of Yahweh, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, lift up the affections and the inner man to lies, and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. You see how these Beatitudes are rooted in Old Testament. Specifically, this one, Psalm 24, this purity of heart. We saw in Proverbs chapter 23 that from the heart flow the very streams of life, the issues of life. If there's an impure fountain there, then the rivers that gush forth from that heart will be impure and they will defile others around them. You see, what Jesus is describing here is a heart that first and foremost has been made new by regeneration and by the new covenant where Ezekiel chapter 36 promises that God in the new covenant will give his people a brand new heart and a new spirit and he will come to reside in them by his spirit. But he creates a purity of heart because no one can purify his own heart. No lady can purify her own heart, purity of heart, comes first and foremost from God, but then it's maintained by God himself as we rely upon him, as we experience the cleansing, sanctifying power of his word. How can a young man keep his way pure? But by guarding his way, guarding his path by the word of God. The promise for those who are pure in heart is that they will see God. And people have tried to, again, uh, uh, present tense this thing, right? And, well, you'll see God now. And there's no doubt that living an integrity, a life of integrity, a life of moral uprightness allows you to see God's hand in your life and to see his glory in his word. But what's ultimately promised here, again, is that final day of seeing God when, as Revelation says, they shall see his face. Those who are pure in heart. Friends, is this not enough motivation to purify yourself with God's provisions? The blood of Christ, the word, the spirit, prayer, fellowship, worship, singing. All of these things have a purifying effect on the heart. And it's the pure in heart who will see God. This should be motivation, friends, to see the face of God. What, what greater blessing is there? 
Oh, I want a pure heart so that I can have a, a good marriage. Well, that's good, but your marriage is going to pass away the second you die. What about seeing God? Seeing Him and being found in Him and being embraced by Him and being overwhelmed with joy in His presence with a glorified body and everything made new around you. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. They shall see God. He goes on and says in verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Again, this appears to be a quotation from Psalm 34, 14, where the writer says, Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. These are those who seek conflict, especially within the church, and rush in like firemen to put out the fire. And to seek peace. Friends, these are, these, these are not meant, as I said last week, to be a walk in the park for us. But one, on one hand, these do define who we are in our regenerate states. But they also define who we must be in our growth in sanctification. We ought to be peacemakers. We ought to be quick to, as Ephesians 4 says, to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace amongst the church. He's going to go on and teach us in this Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 5, that if you're at the altar, and obviously he's speaking as one who is teaching still under the Old Covenant, where there were sacrifices and there was an altar and there were offerings being offered, that if you're there at the altar and there you remember that some, your brother has something against you, this is not just a oh man, he didn't greet me after church. This is what he's signifying, a a huge offense, something that you've legitimately wronged him in. Well, what's interesting is that he's teaching in Galilee, miles and miles away from where the altar was in Jerusalem. So what he's calling them to is that if you're there in Jerusalem, miles and miles away from your home, and you remember that back at home, you have some brother that has a legitimate offense something against you that you've really done and you've wronged him in, leave your gift at the altar in Jerusalem. Go back home if it takes you miles, if it takes you another whatever, and make things right. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. On that great day, God will pronounce them sons of God. As Romans chapter 8 says, when the creation is set free from its bondage to decay and corruption, it will obtain the freedom of the glory of the sons and daughters of God. On that day when all things are made new, God, as it were, will say, behold, my sons and my daughters. You will be called the son of God. I mean, one who emulates God's own peacemaking tendencies. He, when we were enemies, reconciled us and made peace with us. Therefore, we are to seek to make peace with others and for others. He goes on and he says in the last one, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He understands that living this kind of life is going to attract animosity if you are poor in spirit crushed down taking the posture spiritually of a beggar before God saying yes I know I'm adopted I know I have the privileges of sonship and adoption 
before you, Father. I know that really what I am in and of myself is just a poor, destitute beggar who can only stretch out a hand and look down to the ground for you to give and you to supply and you to bless and you to equip. If you live that kind of a life, if, if you take sin seriously enough to mourn, you're going to be persecuted. You're going to be mocked. And the, 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 what he's signifying here is this is intense persecution. This is mockery. This is people maligning you, slandering you, as we're going to see in the next verse. But he says, blessed are you. Oh, you show that you have God's favor on your life when others revile you and persecute you because of me. If you, he says, take my commands seriously and are experience the wrath of the world, God's favor is upon you. The light of his countenance has been lifted up upon you. His face approves of you if it's for righteousness' sake. Now, this doesn't mean that we can go out looking for persecution by being arrogant and by choosing fights on social media and arguments and, oh, look, I got persecuted today. No, you got persecuted. You got what you deserved for your, your sin, for being divisive, for loving, quarrel, you know, loving to be quarrelsome, enjoying quarrels. It's not for righteousness' sake. Jesus says if you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, you're blessed. You show that God's favor is upon your life. And you implement these realities. When you grow up in these qualities that are already yours, as Peter says, and you're persecuted for it, oh, you're blessed. Consider yourself blessed. Peter said the same thing in 1 Peter. Consider yourself blessed. For yours, again, this is the bookend, yours is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he elaborates further, verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you, slander you, speak evil against you, and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. He says, on my account. On my account. For my sake, that is. Because of me, because your loyalty and love for me, blessed are you. Blessed are you. You see, it wasn't long before the church would, after his ascension, begin to spread. And the church would begin to grow. And the church would begin to gain traction and attract attention from a godless Roman Empire. Where this verse literally came to some sort of fulfillment. Our brothers and sisters were spoken evil of. For the first three centuries of church history, Christians were accused of cannibalism, incest, atheism, and a general hatred for humanity. And obviously these were gross distortions. These accusations were, were rooted in just gross distortions of what they saw the Christians doing. For example, they were charged with cannibalism because they celebrated the Lord's Supper where a man's body and blood, the people were drinking it. So word got around and the Christians became known as cannibals. They were slandered. They were charged with incest because the common practice was for a husband and wife to refer to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. It's true. They were, they were accused of being incestuous. 
They were accused of being atheists because they rejected the gods of the Roman Empire. They were accused of hating humanity because they did not follow the social norms. And businesses were suffering because of it. A man, an employee, you could have a Christian employee who is not willing to bow down to Caesar and to, 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 to burn incense to Caesar. And so he's taken, he's, he's, he's taken away, he loses his ability, and so the, the business owner suffers for it. These Christians are hateful towards us. They, they won't simply just bow down and even lip service, give lip service to Caesar. They run willing to do it. And therefore they were slandered. They spoke evil against them. Well, Jesus says, if that's you, rejoice and be glad. The joy here signifies, as in Luke one forty four. A joy that produces tears and skipping and jumping all over the place. And it's a present tense, so it's commanded, continually be joyful. Continually rejoice and be glad. And here's why. He says, For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you, and your reward is great in heaven. Oh, friends, all the motivations that are set before us to live the blessed life, are overwhelmingly gracious. Not only will we see God, not only will we be satisfied, comforted, not only will we receive mercy and be called sons of God and see God, but God actually promises to reward us for being who he's made us to be. Imagine that. He's rewarding his people on that final day. For being who he made them to be. That's grace and generosity like none other. For so they persecuted the prophets before you. And as we come to the conclusion here, many think that verses 13 and following, 13 through 16, are some kind of detached portion of this. Prior to studying the Sermon on the Mount, I really did as a Christian think that this was just a bunch of random unconnected pieces and portions of the Lord Jesus' teaching. But this naturally flows from the Beatitudes. Look at verse 13. He says, you, and, and, and what's interesting about this is it's an emphatic you. That is to say, you and you alone, my disciples, you and you alone are the salt of the earth. You and you alone are the salt of the earth. You see, as he's going to go on to teach, not only will living this wholesome life attract persecution, but by God's grace, it will also attract a dying world to inquire about their hope. To inquire about their hope. You are the salt, he says, of the earth. Now, this is interesting because someone has identified at least 11 11 different uses of salt in the ancient times. At least 11 uses. There's some verses in Job chapter 6 and Colossians chapter 4 that talk about one of the purposes of salt being to add flavor. And that's been more of a Western thing. We, We emphasize that more. We have salt on the table because, well, if you're like me, you just like more salt on your food. Maybe you'll pay for it later on. But in the first century, that's, that's, that wasn't a typical practice for first century people. It wasn't like mom cooked food and you're like, oh, I need some salt on this. It, that, that's not how it was. 
Another usage of salt was, and a lot of commentators and preachers and, and Christians just like to, 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 to think of it this way, uh, that salt is a preservative. And so they'll say things like, well, we're called to just uh, preserve the, the good order of the world around us. I look at that and I'm like, what in this world is worth preserving in its current fallen state? You see, there was no refrigeration in that day, and so meat could quickly spoil. And the way to avoid this was by curing the meat with salt. The salt would kill the bacteria that would be responsible for the spoilage. And so people say, well, you're meant to preserve the goodness of God in this world. Friends, this world is a sinking ship. This world is a corrupt place. There's nothing worth preserving. I'm an advocate for the third meaning or possibility, which refers to salt as being primarily an agent of purification. You see, that meat could be preserved because it was first purified. The bacteria was first killed, and therefore it could be preserved. The only thing worth preserving in this world is that which has already been made pure by the gospel and by the truth. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the salt spread throughout all the world. Exodus 30, verse 35, says that the incense offering was to be seasoned with salt, pure and holy. That was the reputation of salt. Ezekiel 16, verse 4, refers to newborn babies uh, being washed with water and then salted with salt. Why? Because it would kill bacteria. It would kill any unknown uh, any uh, uh, bacteria second uh, kings chapter 2 verse 21 teaches us that salt served as a purifying agent in which elijah elisha threw salt into a contaminated spring and said this is what the lord says i have healed this water how how did he purify the water by salt Salt is a purifying agent. And so what he's teaching us here is that we, as we live out who we are in these beatitudes, as we live out the demands of the kingdom, and as we live according to our new identity as people recreated, regenerated in the image of God in true righteousness and holiness, as we do that, we will have a purifying effect on the world around us. Notice how he goes on. He says, but if salt has lost its taste. Unfortunately, our ESV, even the legacy standard, really, we miss it here. The word is actually, if salt is made foolish, many have pointed out that the word in the Greek is actually moron. If salt becomes moronic, if salt becomes foolish, it is to play on words. He's basically saying, if salt can no longer function as salt, then it becomes useless. It has nothing to do with taste. You see, if salt had gone bad, there was no use for it. You could not even throw it into the manure pile because at least manure could be spread over a garden or over a field and, 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 and the field would benefit from the manure. But if you contaminated the, contaminated the manure with salt, you would spread salt into a field and nothing would grow. You'd kill everything. It would have a death 
producing effect. And that's what Jesus says here. You and you alone, disciples, are the salt of the earth, agents for the kingdom of God sent out to purify and cleanse and make new and then preserve. But if you no longer function as salt, with how? How shall its saltiness be restored? Now, he's not saying that you're going to lose your salvation if you cease to be effective in this world. He simply says that if you lose your effectiveness in the world, that's a real possibility. It's possible to be a Christian and so damage your testimony and damage your witness that it's impossible for you to have an effect on people. It's an impossibility for you to have a purifying effect on people because no one can take you seriously anymore. Your wife, your children, those around you, it's going to take a lot of hard work integrity and building a life of character and faithfulness and provenness over time to understand, help people understand that you are the real deal. That yes, you in the past, you really blew it, but you've been restored. You've been confirmed. You've been strengthened. You've been established. And you have a position in this world where you, through Christ and for Christ, can be a purifying agent in this world. This is a warning for us to Paul told Timothy, keep a close watch on your life. To keep a close watch on your life. Because if you cease to be who you've been called to be by Christ and then do what you've been called to do for Christ, you can easily become like worthless salt that has no purpose in this world. No purpose whatsoever. Not even for the trash pile. Not even for the manure pile, as Luke actually points out. He goes on and says... In similar fashion, it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. The only use for this kind of salt would be to be thrown in on the hard beaten path, the road, the gravel. That's the only place it would be served. It would serve a purpose. He says, you and you alone, church, are my purifying agents in the world. And he goes on to metaphor number two, and we conclude here. He says in verse 14, you, and again, the you is emphatic in the Greek. You and you alone are the light of the world. Salt of the earth, parallel, light of the world. Light of the world. Now this is interesting because, again, he's referring back, reaching back to these latter chapters in Isaiah when we see in these, these days of the Messiah that the light would come to the people of God and that they would be a light. The Messiah would be a light and his people would be a light for the nations. He says, you are the light of the world. It's interesting because we've seen these new, these, this old covenant and this new covenant, this old Moses and this new Moses, this old Israel and this new Israel. It's brought out of, yes, ethnic Israel, but it's a new people, a new community, a regenerate people a sanctified people, the new covenant people of Christ. And what God regarded once as his light is no longer his light. As we're going to see in the latter chapters of Matthew, Israel was meant to be a light. They were meant to be a people producing fruits for the world to enjoy, and they failed to do it. They were to be that fig tree that was producing good fruit for passerbys, and they failed. Jesus raises up a new community, a new Israel under a new covenant. And he says, you now and you alone are the light of the world. 
If salt had a purifying effect on a substance, light has an illuminating effect on that which is around them, right? He goes on and says, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Why? It shines at, at night. The fires, the torches, the, the lights, the, the, the lamps burning with oil. It's very evident that there's a city on top of that hill. No one can deny it. No one can hide it. He says, nor, verse 15, do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. I really do believe that our Lord has a sense of humor. You don't light a lamp and then put a lampshade over it. Why? It, you're going to cause a fire. That's not how it's meant. It, the, the lantern, the lamp is meant to illuminate. It's meant to light in a room. It's meant to light the way. Throughout the Old Testament, light was a symbol of revelation and guidance and illumination. He says, you put it on a stand and it gives light to the, all who are in the house. Well, he concludes in verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others. Your light of being poor in spirit. Your light of mourning over sin. Your light of spirit wrought meekness. Your light of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Your light of showing mercy. Your light of pursuing purity of heart. Your light of being a peacemaker and your light even that shines when you are being persecuted. Let your light so shine, he says, before others, so that they may see your good works, all of the outworking of these beatitudes, that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Peter takes this in his epistle and seems to indicate that what our Lord means here is the conversion of people repenting and giving glory to God. You see, your testimony works. Your testimony is not the gospel, but your testimony and your witness gives a credit to the gospel. It, it, it adorns the gospel, to use the language of Paul. It makes the gospel look even more glorious. And so, the same way salt can become useless and cease to purify, your light can be hidden. Your light can be hidden. Your light can be veiled. You can avoid being seen. You can avoid shining. God has called you and I, and the emphasis again, you and I and you and I alone as a church to go out and be purifying agents as salt in this earth and then preserve that which is good and for us to be light shiners, people who show the way to Christ who show the way to glory, who illuminate the path for sinners to come and be forgiven and justified and be glorified eventually. We are called to be that. There's no other salt and there's no other light in this world. It's Jesus here placing a massive responsibility on the church to be who we're called to be as those who are blessed by God and then to live out what we're called to do as purifying this world through the gospel, purifying people by calling them to repentance and calling them to faith in Christ, seeing them made new, and then going forth to do the same thing in the Great Commission. Disciples making disciples by the gospel, purifying hearts and illuminating the way to glory. It's all 
connected. It's all connected. As we conclude here, it's very evident that if these blessings are reserved for God's people, if the Beatitudes are descriptions of those who are and have been blessed by God, then I want you, as we conclude, to consider what it means to still be under the curse of sin and death and the curse of alienation from God. You see, if blessed are the poor in spirit, then cursed are the self-sufficient. If blessed are those who mourn over sin, then it must mean that to be under God's curse, to be under the curse of sin and death, is to not mourn over sin, to be boastful in sin, to be bold in sin, to be arrogant in sin, to approve evil around you. If the meek are blessed, then the proud are cursed. If hungering and thirsting for righteousness shows that you have God's blessing upon your life, then hungering and thirsting for sin shows that you are still under the curse. If, 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 if being merciful shows that you have God's favor upon your life, then it, it teaches us that to be cursed is to be ruthless and demanding. Give them justice. Give them hell. Give them discipline. Give them what they deserve. That's a mark of being cursed. If blessedness results in a person being a peacemaker, then someone who's cursed loves divisiveness and loved, loves contentiousness. And finally, if being blessed is to be persecuted for righteousness' sake and for Christ's sake, then it must mean that to be accepted by the world and to be applauded by the world is to be cursed. You are cursed. You are under the curse still. If you live for the applause of the world, acceptance from the world, and if promises of good are made to Christ's people, then consider the outcome for you who are outside of Christ this morning. If the poor in spirit inherit the kingdom, you will experience exclusion from the kingdom. If those who mourn receive comfort, there will be no comfort for you, day or night, as Revelation 14 says, as the smoke of your torment goes up forever and ever in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. No inheritance, only wrath, no satisfaction, no mercy, no beatific vision of God seeing him in grace on that day, no sonship, and no joy in all eternity. And so the call to you who are outside of Christ today is to repent, turn to Christ who is ready and willing to forgive and receive you into his kingdom and to transform you to be like these individuals who are and will forever be blessed. And for those of us who are in Christ, friends, these qualities, these beatitudes, to use Peter's words, are already ours in Christ. And so let us cultivate these realities. Let us grow in these qualities. I want to encourage you to be who God remade you to be. And the result is that you'll be salt and light in this world, and your Father will be made much of and glorified, and that's what we are called to live for. Father, thank you for your word.
We thank you for the clarity, the authority with which our Savior taught. Help us to walk in the blessedness that you have bestowed upon us, to grow in hungering and thirsting for righteousness, to grow in the pursuit of purity that we might see you face to face. I pray that you'd have mercy on those in this place who have none of these qualities because they do not have a new heart. They do not have any semblance of repentance toward you or faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you would have mercy upon them. May we grow. May our progress be evident. And may you be glorified in and through our lives. We ask for Christ's sake. Amen. Remember, church, that the Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. That's his promise.